Welcome as well from me. Good morning. My name's Philip. I've not met you before. I lead the church here. It's great to see you. It's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a great morning so far, and we're going to continue, I'm sure, to have a great morning together. Uh, If you are new, as Jason kind of alluded to before, we're in a series of talks called The Trial, which is based in the book of Romans, and we've called it The Trial because Paul, who's the author of Romans, is using like a legal framework, a legal lens, through which he's explaining different angles of the gospel. This is the seventh in our series of talks so far. And uh, actually, I believe God's going to speak to us in a number of different ways through this passage, as I'll allude to in a second. But I really have enjoyed and sensed the, the kindness and indeed the sovereignty of God, actually, in uh, bringing this passage to us this morning. So let me read it. It's going to be Romans 6 and verse 1, if you have your Bibles, but it also will appear behind me. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Like I say, I really have sensed the the grace and the sovereignty of God uh, this week in bringing us to this passage. Uh, And if you are a visitor here, I want to take a moment just to really reflect on something that is part of King's Church life, I suppose. Because as many of you will know, this week we've had to process some, some very sad news. Um, and many of you will have heard that news, and many of you will know uh, Angela Brockwell and her husband Nigel and son Jason. Some of you won't, but many of you will, because many of you have been here for a number of years. And uh, I hope by now many of you will have received my communication on, on Friday that Angela passed away very suddenly earlier on this week. Uh, which I think you'll agree came as a uh, A great shock, really, to all of us, not least, of course, to to Nigel and to Jason and to their family. It was something that came totally out of the blue. And uh, as I've been reflecting on this this week and the shock that particularly Nigel and Jason and the broader family, and especially for those of you who've known Angela for many years, have been going through this week, I really have uh, been so glad of Paul's help in Romans. Uh, Because later on in Romans, he, he talks about what a church should be like. He talks about the DNA of how a church should be. And one of the things he says is that church life, people will rejoice alongside those who rejoice and they'll mourn alongside those who mourn or weep alongside those who weep. And for Paul, that's how church life works, that we are as ready and as willing to rejoice with those who rejoice as we are to mourn with those who mourn. And this is one of those, or the most difficult of times, isn't it? This is where the rubber hits the road in life and in church life. And so we want to take time now, and of course over the coming weeks and months and years, really to mourn alongside those who mourn, not least Nigel and Jason and other friends and family. But Paul also tells us in another one of his letters, 
he also says that when we grieve, because he knows we will, he says when that happens, we won't do so in a hopeless fashion. You might know the verse that I'm referring to. And I think by God's grace today, Paul actually in our passage this morning, looks at the very reason for why we don't grieve or mourn in a hopeless fashion in the exact passage in Romans 6 that we're in this morning. And in verses 8 and 9 in particular, Paul says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And like I say, it's ultimate, isn't it? It's in matters of life and death where the rubber hits the road. And I'm so glad that the Bible speaks straight into these situations. And we'll look at the broader context of the passage in a moment. But in, fundament, in, in simple terms, Paul is stating a fundamental truth of the gospel. One that is true for Angela and one that is true for every Christian who has passed away, including those in our own lives. What he's saying is that for Angela, her faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross... What happened in that moment when she put her faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection was that she was fully identified with his death. And in that moment, she effectively, if you like, spiritually died with him. And so she was joined with him as every Christian was in that moment of faith. And because she was joined with him in his death, she was joined with him as every Christian is in his resurrection, raised to newness of life as a Christian. But furthermore... Although Paul is primarily in this passage concerned with the the here and now, of what it means to be a Christian living in newness of life in the here and the now, he also says, or part of what he means by saying, will also live with him, in verse 8, is that because Jesus doesn't just rise, but then lives forever, so does Christian. So does Angela. That's part of the, the promise of the Christian faith, that her physical death, shocking and tragic, though it absolutely is, what it actually does is it accelerates her into the most wonderful part of her inheritance. Actually accelerates her into living in utter joy for Jesus, with Jesus, forever. That's why Paul says, you will grieve, and I want you to grieve with those who grieve but I want you to do so with a hope in mind. I wonder if I could just pray, and then we'll we'll continue on together. Lord God, we, we want to first of all, even now, so fresh and raw as it is, we want to thank you for Angela's life and for all that you did with her and through her. We want to thank you for the blessings that you lavished upon her and her family and the blessings that we received as a result of her. Thank you, God, for that. And God, we also thank you so much that you are a God of comfort. That's what you say about yourself. And so we say, God of comfort, will you come and be great comfort to Nigel, to Jason, to the the broader family, to us as a church, we ask for your comfort, God. And we ask that you would use us to be, if you like, ministers of comfort to each other. And God, we say that as we mourn and grieve, we ask you that you would help us to do that with a clear hope in mind. We thank you so much that death is not the end. We thank you so much that as painful as our physical death is, it actually accelerates us into the most glorious part of our inheritance in Christ. 
living with him forever in joy and peace. We thank you so much for that, God. Amen. So I'm going to try and continue with the rest of the, of the talk. And uh, I won't take much longer than I, than I normally do. But I do feel that God is speaking to us more broadly through this passage. And that's why it's so good to rely upon the word of God. Because when you do that, he speaks through that. He shapes us through that. And I think he's going to keep doing so this morning. As I mentioned before, Paul is not only concerned with the eternal nature of what we freely receive from Jesus, he also wants to answer a question about the here and the now. He's doing both. In fact, the context of the passage is leaning towards Paul wanting to get into the, into the nitty-gritty of what it means to be a Christian in the here and the now. And he spent five chapters, hasn't he? We've spent five talks, summarized last week in the sixth talk. He spent five chapters looking at five different angles of this amazing gospel. And he said in those first five chapters, before getting to this point, the gospel is seriously good news. It's seriously good news, as I've just been alluding one angle off. And Paul has been emphasizing the different angles of the gospel and why they're such good news. And we've taken five talks to emphasize each angle. And so we've said the gospel is good news because it restores right order in our hearts. The gospel tells us that the right order of things is God as God and us as not. And that is good news. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the judge who will bring an end to all injustice and he was judged on our behalf for our injustice. It's good news. The gospel tells us that all guilt and shame that I have and that I will incur has all been dealt with. It was all pinned to Jesus on the cross in the most shameful death imaginable. And as such, my account is permanently clear of all guilt and shame. I don't have to sit on a naughty step anymore. It's good news. And fourthly, the gospel tells us that because we are fully identified with Christ, not only is my account cleared of its debt of guilt and shame, it's also credited with all of Jesus' perfection and righteousness. I have all of the approval the Father feels for the Son in my account every single day. It's good news. And fifthly, the gospel tells us that God's love for us is utterly secure. It has to be because he first loved us before we did anything. When we were effectively opponents of us, of his, he loved us then. And so we know that we're loved now, all the way through. The gospel is good news. And Paul's been telling us in different angles for five different chapters. And what he says at the beginning of chapter six effectively is, listen, if you've reflected on this glorious gospel of good news, this lavish, abundant, extraordinary grace that has been freely given and goes on being freely given, he says, if you've really reflected upon that, you kind of should be asking a question or two. He's saying, if you really believe that all your punishment for all your guilt and shame, done now and before and forever, is all dealt with, if you really believe that every single day you wake up to the permanent, consistent approval and love of God, that grace flows every single day, you should be asking a couple of questions, Paul is saying. You should be asking, so can we just carry on sinning then? Or to put it a different way, perhaps we should be asking, surely I can just do whatever I want and the grace of God will keep on flowing. So to put it a different way, perhaps, let's say that tomorrow the government issues a one-day uh, amnesty on all laws and consequences of breaking all laws. So tomorrow, none of the laws of the land count and none of the consequences of breaking the laws of the land count. One day tomorrow, 26th of October. If that was to be the case tomorrow and you just heard about it now, I would imagine you might want to ask a couple of questions 
And depending on your personality, maybe, you might ask one of these two questions. Surely you're going to ask, okay, surely that means it's going to be chaos. People are just going to go around doing whatever they want, robbing banks and stealing cars. Or, if anything like me, you might ask a slightly different question. So, can I just go around tomorrow robbing banks and stealing cars? <laughs> that's what I would be asking. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at. When you reflect upon the lavish, abundant, consistently freely given nature of the gospel of grace, it should lead us to ask that question. So, surely I can just do whatever I want because grace will continue to come my way. And so what Paul does to help answer that question is he kind of takes a step back and says, don't think so much about sin. Let's take a step back and really ask, why do we do anything at all? So let's just do that now. Why do we do anything at all? Why did you come to church this morning? Why will you give your child lunch this lunchtime? Why will you go to work tomorrow? Because you're a Christian, or because you're a mum or a dad, or because you're a worker. So basically, our actions, surely, our actions reveal who we are. My actions largely reveal who I am. And that's what, I guess, much of modern psychology is based upon, or, or cognitive therapy in particular, is based upon that kind of basic premise that what we think about ourselves and the world here, that will largely drive what we go and do. So therefore, all that we do comes down to our identity, who we believe we are, what we believe about ourselves. And I think Paul already knows that to be true. And so what he wants to do is to look at what we believe about ourselves, identity, who we believe we are, because he knows that is what will drive what we do. Make sense? So I think he does that in three ways. He, he looks at when we live as a part of our identity. He looks at where we live that forms our identity and for whom we live, when we live, where we live, and for whom we live. Number one, when we live. So Paul knows, like I think all of us do, that we partly get our identity from when we live, the time in which we live. So we live, don't we, in 21st century, post-post-modern, largely conflict-free time. That's when we live, and that shapes us to a large extent. So, Here's one for those of you who are children of the 1980s. You may have spotted this week that it was Back to the Future Day. I don't know if anybody spotted that this moment, this, this week, because the film was first released in 1985, and of course they travelled forwards to 21st of October 2015. So this week was Back to the Future Day. And if you've seen the films, enough of you are nodding and smiling to know, tell me that you have, you'll know that the part of the appeal of those films, of course, is the fascination with being able to time travel. And of course, humans have always been fascinated with what it might be to be able to time travel. But I think the film also uh, taps in to our fascination in another way. It taps into the reality that when we live affects how we behave. When we live affects how we behave. So Marty McFly, when he travels forward 30 years, he realizes people behave then in a different way to they do now. He knows that the when affects who we are and how we behave. And so his fascination is seeing how will people behave in 2015. And that, of course, is part of Back to the Future Day this week, to see how, how right the filmmakers were. And, uh, and Doc Brown, who's the inventor of the time-travelling car, many of you will know, he says a really interesting thing, I think, that can help us understand that. He says that the reason he wants to travel into the future is to get a clear perception of humanity, where we've been, where we're going, 
and then wonderfully alliterated, the pitfalls, the possibilities, the perils, and the promise. Perhaps even an answer to that universal question, why? And he knows that if he can go into a different time, he'll be able to see how people are going to behave. He knows people will be shaped by the when in which they live, and it intrigues him to see what result that will have upon how they behave. And so if our identity as people, if you like, is partly shaped upon the when in which we live, the time from our birth to the time of our passing, Paul is saying that is even more true for the Christian. He's saying the when is even more important for the Christian. And for Paul, the identity, the who we are of a Christian is demonstrated or kind of um, most accurately seen in baptism which he refers to in this, in this passage. And for Paul, baptism tells us that we've kind of, it tells us that the Christian has moved from one time span to the other. That's what Paul believes baptism means. Look at verse three, if you will. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul says that the baptism of Christian, it tells us who we are. It tells us who we are. It tells me that my identity as a Christian actually comes from what happened 2,000 years ago, in the past. That actually, in that mo- when I put my faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross and the resurrection, I was counted as having died with him 2,000 years ago, and that leaps forward and affects my present and indeed my future. So in some respects, baptism is back to the future. It's kind of you going back to an event, being counted as being part of that event, and that then transforms the present and indeed the future. Baptism is back to the future. And that's why, as Ebieri was saying before, baptism is really important to us here at King's Church. Water baptism for believers. Yes, it is a public declaration of someone's willingness to commit to follow Jesus. Absolutely. But it's also a symbolic statement that says, this happened to me. This act of baptism, me being, me kind of, as it were, dying and going under, metaphorically, and being raised, that happened to me. That's what baptism is saying. So when Helena Bayena, who's getting baptized on the 8th of November, as Ebiere was referring to, what she'll be doing is saying, my faith in Christ identifies me with Jesus' death, Jesus' burial, and Jesus' resurrection. Therefore, I and my sin died with him. I and my sin was buried with him, and I was raised to new life with him. Now, and one day, forever, alongside him. That's why we believe at King's Church that baptism is just a key part of being a follower of Jesus. The New Testament is just a normal rhythm of life. When people come to faith and repentance in Jesus, they're baptized very quickly because it, it is a symbolic statement of what's happened to them by putting their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I would endorse all the Ebieri said, I love us to be there on the 8th of November as a church to rejoice with those that rejoice and to rejoice alongside each other, to celebrate what Helena is doing, to hear her testimony of her journey to following Jesus, take time to build friendships and community afterwards. We're doing it at four o'clock so the children can be with us and we can enjoy them. It'll be a short service, just an hour or so, so I'll speak quite briefly. We'll sing, we'll hear Helena's testimony, which is a wonderful testimony to hear, and we'll celebrate together afterwards. So I'd love us to be there. I'd love us to be there.
So our identity is partly based upon the when we live, and the baptism for the Christian kind of exemplifies that. Secondly, our identity, who we are, is also based upon where we live, where we live. So whenever you go to a different country, unless you really are, like my dad, steadfastly and adamantly English, and you're not going to budge in any way whatsoever, most of us will probably adapt to the where that we live. Yeah? So I have only watched a basketball match, eaten a giant hot dog covered in mustard, and a litre of Coke. I've done that once ever. Why? Because I was in New York, in America. This is what you do. Once I was, I was, I was taking a, a cricket match, and the, the, it was a beautiful day, no reason for the game to stop at all, and yet we stopped the game for two and a half hours before carrying on. Why? Because we were in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. It was a Friday, Friday prayers. You need to stop the game before you carry on. We changed what we did because of where we were. The where is a key part of our identity. All of us are shaped by the, by the cultural conditioning that's been around us. That's why people tend to be drawn to little microgroups, because they're attracted by those that share the same cultural conditioning. Yeah? So the where is key. And Paul says, for the Christian, the where is equally as key, equally as, uh, key as the when. In verse 9, he says, as a Christian, we have left one dominion behind. Sin. One place. He calls it a dominion, a place. We've left that behind and gone to a new dominion, a new kingdom, a new place. One governed by grace. So... Let me uh, use a story to tell this to help understand this. Charles Dickens is a bit of a favourite author of mine. I didn't enjoy much at school, but I did enjoy studying A Tale of Two Cities at school, which is a wonderful novel by Dickens. And again, enough of you are smiling that you are with me or you know where I'm going with this one. But if you don't know the story, it's a wonderful novel. Uh, the story centres around two key characters, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay. And bizarrely, they look very similar. They're almost identical in appearance. And Charles Darnay is a French nobleman by birth. And the story is set at the, in the time of the French Revolution. And if you know your history, you'll know that being a French nobleman during the French Revolution is a fairly dangerous occupation. And sure enough, Charles Darnay finds himself imprisoned and sentenced to execution by a guillotine for his crime of being a French nobleman during the French Revolution. Now, Sidney Carton is devoted to Charles Darnay, and indeed to his family in particular. So what Sidney Carton does is he, he obtains access to Charles Darnay's prison cell as a visitor. Then he, he manages to persuade him to change clothes. Remember, they already look very similar anyway. And then, surreptitiously, he drugs Charles Darnay, who then passes out. And of course, Darnay is then carried out, assumed to be Carton. He later revives and he flees and escapes to freedom in England. Whereas Sidney Carton goes to the guillotine, impersonating Charles Darnay, because he looks like him and is dressed like him, and he is executed on behalf of Charles Darnay, muttering the immortal words, it is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. And I wouldn't be the first preacher to draw illustrations from this story. And of course, on the one hand, it is a picture of Jesus dying instead of us. Sidney Carson substitutes himself for Charles Darnay and dies on his behalf. But it's also a picture of us, the Christian, dying with Jesus. Let me show you what I mean. Because when Sidney Carton died, as far as the French authorities were concerned, 
Charles Darnay had died, as far as they were concerned. As far as they were concerned, they had executed Charles Darnay. Charles Darnay flees to London, a wonderful new life of, of freedom in London. But officially, in France, according to their records, he is dead. Now, in theory, of course, he could have returned to France if he wanted to. But obviously, that would be madness, wouldn't it? He's, he's hated there. He's supposed to be dead there. There's no way he's going to return to France. He's going to live his new life in England in freedom and in joy. He lived in England as, a, as an Englishman with a new identity. Why on earth would he go back? And I think Paul is making a largely similar point. He's saying the good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus died for us instead of us. He's giving us a new angle this week. He's saying the good news of the gospel is also that we died with Jesus. Our old self, one effectively governed by sin, under the dominion of sin, died and was buried along with Jesus. But because we're convinced that Jesus didn't stay dead, that he really did rise, then we don't stay dead either. And like Charles Darnay, who was revived, more so the Christian is raised to new life with Christ. A life no longer lived under the dominion of sin, but lived under the dominion of grace. And so Paul's saying, when it comes to how to live as a Christian, the what to do, or the what not to do of the Christian, Paul's saying, well, live as though you were in, live according to the land you're in. Live according to the dominion you now find yourself. He's effectively saying, live in England, not France. I'm not saying that France is the kingdom of, of sin and death and, and London is the kingdom of life and grace and so on. But that's the, the broader point that, that Paul is trying to make. You live somewhere else now. Your identity is not just a matter of when, something that happened. It's also a matter of where, where you now find yourself. So for the Christian, our identity is formed in what happened, the when that affects the present and the future. And it's also informed by the where, where we now find ourselves compared to where we were. And finally, our identity is completed by the who, who we live for, who we live for. And again, I think most of us would agree whether we're Christians or not, whether we're just exploring the Christian faith. I think we'd all agree that the who we live for is a key part of our identity. And as such, it's a key part of what we do. It affects what we do. So those of you who've become parents for the first time, you will know that the what you do changes dramatically when the who changes. When a new person comes into your life, that transforms everything you do in many ways, doesn't it? I can see some exhausted nods of agreement. The who changes everything. You're now living for someone else. Now, it's a whole other sermon in terms of what does it mean to, to live for Jesus, to live for your spouse, to live for your children. That's a whole other talk. But fundamentally, a new person will change who you're living for and it will change what you do. So my life has changed a little bit in, in the last year or so, having got engaged. I don't any longer, I hope, make too many decisions based upon just me. I'm, I'm learning not to make too many decisions based upon just me. So... A little example of that this week, and I might regret forever giving you this story, but here we go. Uh, it, was Caroline's, it was Caroline's birthday this week, and I knew that what she would love to do would be to have a dance lesson. <laughs> and your own hilarity would already prove the point that I would never have dreamt of doing that before. A year ago, I would never have imagined ever doing that thing. But because I am now living for someone else, 
and on a good day with a fair wind, want to be a loving fiancé and future husband, I took what I think is the admirable and bold step of purchasing said dance lesson. <laughs> My point is, the who we live for changes the what we do. The who we live for changes our identity and changes the what we do as a result. And Paul is also saying, the who you live for is the final part of the identity and it will change all that you do. That's why at the end of our passage in verse 11, he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is not a new piece of theology for the Christian, but I hope it's helpful to piece together what our true identity is if we are a Christian, who we really are. If our identity really is grounded in this reality of having died with Christ, kind of brain bender though it is, buried with Christ and raised with Christ, then we live with him and for him. And that affects everything that we do. So in summary, I'm saying the who we are drives all that we'll do. And the who we are is made up of when we live, where we live, and for whom we live. So just in these closing minutes, I want to try and just drill that down a bit more into the practicalities of our lives tomorrow, or even our lives today, when you go back home or, or to work tomorrow. How does this actually change things for us? How does it shape things for us? Well, I think, first of all, it helps us answer Paul's question. Remember Paul's original question was? In light of this amazing gospel of grace that just goes on giving, surely I can just go on doing what I want. Well, Paul's answer to that is, yes, you can. Grace will go on giving. Forgiveness will go on coming. But, he's saying, it would be a total misrepresentation of who you are. He's like, it would just be an illogical choice, entirely at odds with when you now live, where you now live, and for whom you now live. You notice, in answer to this question, Paul doesn't start wagging his finger and saying, no, the answer is definitely no. Don't you go, don't you go doing those things. That's not his answer to the question. His answer is it, just illogical. It doesn't fit in with where you now live, when you now live, and for whom you now live. And we know, of course, that our actions don't gain us. We've already said our actions don't gain us approval from God. That comes freely from Jesus. Our actions don't, don't uh, deal with the wrong things that we've done. That's dealt with by Jesus. But we do know that our actions do show the kind of people we are. So our actions do demonstrate whether we are, as Paul says in verse 11, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I guess my question now would be, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are this morning? Or put differently, who do you believe? Who do you believe you are this morning? Now at this point, you could be forgiven for saying, well, hang on a minute, Philip. I mean, okay, I understand the theology that you're unpacking, but come on, let's, let's be serious here. It doesn't, really, it doesn't really change the things that I'm drawn to. It doesn't really change the things that I find so hard to do or to not do. You might say, I feel just like Paul does later on in the New Testament. I can't do the things I want to do, and I do do the things I don't want to do. I'm so comfortable that Paul says the same thing as much, most of us feel, yeah? So how does, this, how does this nature of identity, how does it really help us with those things, if you like? So just literally in these last couple of minutes, let me just try and, I hope, helpfully probe a little bit as it were. So here's a question. What is the thing, and I, I'm guessing it will probably flash into your mind if I explain it well, define it well. 
What is the thing that you do that in the moment feels necessary and yet afterwards feels dissatisfying? What's the thing that you tend to get drawn to do because it kind of feels necessary? Or the thing that you get drawn not to do that you know that you should because it kind of just feels necessary and afterwards it feels dissatisfying. So maybe one example might be gossip, maybe, I don't know. In that moment, you know you don't want to get drawn into this thing, but it kind of feels necessary that you should, and you do, and yet afterwards it feels dissatisfying. Or envy is a classic one, isn't it? It's when somebody else gets praised, or somebody else seems to be doing really well, life's going great for them. Actually, something happens inside you that doesn't like that. And yet you don't like it, but it just flares up. Or worry. I know worry is kind of supposed to be one of those acceptable Christian things that we're all allowed to do. But Jesus kept saying, don't do it. So what happens in that moment of worry? Why does it feel necessary and yet afterwards it doesn't feel great? Or lust or misusing God's plan for sex. Why does it feel necessary in that moment and yet afterwards, of course, it will feel dissatisfying? And next week, I'll look a bit more at the practicalities, if you like, of how to live free from this stuff. But for now, I don't want you to focus on stopping it. (laughs) It's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying stop it, change. I want us to do what Paul's telling us to do and focus upon what we believe about ourselves in those moments. Because remember, who we believe we are will drive what we do. So just take a step back from trying to fix it or change it. What do we believe, who do we believe we are in those moments? So I was reflecting on that, on that this week, trying to think, what do I believe about myself when I get drawn into some of those things? What am I believing about who I am when I react crossly to criticism? What am I, what am I actually believing about who I am in those moments? And one thing I realise is that I think often what I'm actually believing is that I'm owed something. Does that make sense? In that moment, actually, I'm owed... Gratitude, or praise, or thankfulness. I'm not getting it, so something else sparks up. And I'm at least comfortable with the fact that I think that's what, how the human sin first started. If you look at Eve in the Garden of Eden, the beginning of creation, what caused her to commit that first sin of eating the fruit? She felt she was owed it, didn't she? She had everything God had given her, all creation to enjoy, but that one thing, I need that as well. I think that's partly what goes on in those moments when we choose to go into that thing because it feels necessary. Sometimes, if you're like me, you're feeling, what you're feeling is, I'm owed that thing. And that's what sin is like. It can, it can make us feel like we're owed something. But remember what Paul's saying. We don't live in that dominion anymore. We don't live there anymore. We live somewhere else. Or on the other side of things, I was trying to reflect, what else do I believe about myself when I fall into that stuff I don't want to fall into? And if it's sometimes I'm owed something, I think on the other spectrum it can be, I'm not really worth much. I'm not really worth much. So that can be what we can believe that then triggers us to get into things that we know we want to get into. So here's an example. I guess if you, if you fall into overworking all the time, long hours, exhausting yourself, exhausting your spouse and your family and your children and your health, like what, what's behind that? It can be actually a lack of self-worth. I'm not actually worth anything fundamentally in Christ or not enough in Christ. I need to complete my worth. Work seems to do that, so I'll work more and more and more to complete the self-worth. And then, of course, if work, if work gets taken away, 
That's absolutely crushing. And we could look at a number of examples, I guess, couldn't we? And I'm not trying to kind of um, like pick out people's sin. What I'm trying to do is do what Paul's doing and take a step back from that stuff and say, well, who, who do we believe we are? Because being a Christian is not about gritting our teeth and clenching our fists and trying really hard. It's about living in a brand new identity that was won for us at great cost and freely given to us. So what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about yourself? Especially in those moments where that thing seems so necessary or appealing. Because here's what the gospel tells you is true. And we'll close with this. The gospel says you are not owed anything by God. Nothing at all. Except appropriate punishment. That's what the gospel tells us. It tells us also that you are worth everything to him. That's why he sent Jesus to die for us before we even imagined him, desired him, or stopped opposing him. The gospel tells us that his death and resurrection was not just for you, it also happened with you through faith. So it completely transforms the when and the where and the for whom you live. As a result, the Christian doesn't live under sin anymore. doesn't live there. It might feel like we keep going back there, but that's not our rightful inheritance. Our rightful inheritance is a new place under grace. So Paul's saying, live like that. Live according to who you are. Live according to the when you live, the where you live, and the for whom you live. I wonder if I can invite uh, Robin and the band back up to help us to respond and to worship and to take communion together. I'm aware that I'm kind of poking potentially at some some raw nerves, if you like. And I think next week we'll, we'll try and be a bit more, if you like, practical in the outworking of this. But I really want us to do what Paul is encouraging us to do this morning and to take a step back. Because the life of the Christian is not intended to be one of clenched fists and gritted teeth. It's intended to be one of peacefully and joyfully living in a brand new space, in a brand new time, under a brand new ruler. So we're going to share communion together. Um, if you're not a Christian this morning, you're so welcome with us. You shouldn't feel under any pressure to take communion. But as we do so, like I say, each week, try and use the celebrating of communion, reflecting upon Jesus' broken body and shed blood. Use that specifically to respond to what you've heard. How does taking that meal, if you like, engaging in this ritual, how does it remind you of what is a brand new identity? Because it shouldn't be something that we take to try and muster some strength for the week. It's a reminder, a celebration of the fact we are a brand new person. So I want you to take time to reflect on that as we, as we take the, the bread and the wine together down here or gluten-free and juice at the back if that's your preference. We've got time for at least a couple of songs and so you can come and take communion whenever you wish, the beginning, the middle, the end. It's a great ritual to celebrate but we don't do it in a ritualistic fashion. Okay, should we stand? Let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll sing together. Lord God, we, we do thank you that uh, this gospel of grace, in some ways, really is too good to be true. It really is too good to be true. We really are uh, rescued by grace, saved by grace. We're loved every day by grace. It's all because of what you did, Jesus, and we receive it through faith. We're so grateful for that. And we say, God, sometimes life can be hard to live as you've called us to live. But we're grateful that you're not a finger-wagging, disapproving God. You want to remind us of the fact that we are brand new people with a new identity. We live in a new time, in a new place, under a new master. And that is good news. 
I pray, God, that as we sing, as we pray together, as we take communion, as we listen and reflect upon what we've heard, I pray that you would consolidate this glorious new identity in us. And it would cause us to live joyful, radical lives befitting those who live in a brand new space, in a brand new time, with a brand new ruler. Amen.